Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is Benjamin Graham with your news. This weekend, the Dairy Cinema Plex will be holding a special one-night-only double feature. Saturday night, they will be screening cult classic Faces of Death, a grim look at the brutal, thoughtless end that awaits us all, followed by 2004 DreamWorks classic Shark's Tale, starring Will Smith and Jack Black. Precocious preteens coming to terms with their own mortality get a free popcorn. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I am one of your hosts, CM Alexander. Alongside Benjamin Graham. Hey, Constant Readers. And Joshua Khan. Hey, everybody. Today we are on part three of Different Seasons, covering the body, and also the movie about the body, Sandlot. (laughs) (laughs) I feel Uh, that. Well, yeah. I feel that. Yeah, kind of. (laughs) My God. Uh, As we've been doing with Different Seasons, we will be covering both the story and the movie in this episode. Which is actually called Stand By Me. Oh, (laughs) yes. I I didn't mention that part. I got so carried away (laughs) with my own joke. (laughs) You loved your bit so much. How could we not? (laughs) (laughs) So today we have Josh Khan leading us through the discussion. Josh. Yeah. All right. So uh, before we dive into the body, just a quick thing for those of you who have not read it or seen Stand By Me. Uh, Basically, this is a story about four 12-year-olds who one of them finds out, hey, there's a missing kid and my brother discovered the dead body. I know exactly where it is. You guys want to go see a body? And they do. So it's these four kids going on this adventure to find a dead body and all of the things that entail in their epic adventure. That's insane, right? That wasn't just me. Uh, okay. Imagine you guys, are, you guys are 12 <laughs> years old and one of your best friends comes up to you and says, want to go see a dead body? Your reaction is. Yup. For real? Yeah. CM. I'm trying to think of what I was like when I was 12. Had I entered my goth phase yet? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was reading the book and watching the movie was that this is a coming of age story. Rather than having these typical coming-of-age milestones like falling in love for the first time, um, kissing a girl, seeing a girl naked, I guess. I don't know. You guys Mm. are boys. (laughs) This instead is about seeing a dead body. They must confront death, and that is their rites of passage into, I guess, manhood. And it's a kid their age. Mm-hmm. which is even more important that it's somebody they've been following the story that this kid's been missing. And so it is, it's more uh, attractive to them to want to see this, this body. And I mean, I know at least when I was around 12 that I adventures, it was all about adventures, you know, like if my friends, like, you know, we would go like walk down back roads for hours cause we lived in the country so, yeah, I imagine if we, like, I, I've come across Mashiro Roadkill as a child sure, on no, these long walks. Not quite the same, but okay. Not exactly yeah, the same. I was but but <laughs> I, I can tell you for a fact that there was somebody who was like, hey, there's a dead deer. You want to go see it? And I went, yup. And I went and saw a dead deer. So, I mean, 
Yeah, that's less so, than a dead body, but I my frame of reference comes from my willingness for that one step. Mm. I don't imagine it would. I, I was going to say the takeaway here is Joshua Kahn equates uh, the life of a deer to the life of a human being. I am equating the death of a deer and a 12-year-old together, <laughs> not humans in general. I also have a dead deer story. <laughs> Of course you I'm, do. I'm just the odd man out here then. Because I don't care. I'm 12. When I was 12, I was a little wiener boy. I was. That's a weird choice. <laughs> no. Like, imagine I was the kid. I don't want to I was the kid dressed up as a little sailor with a giant lollipop. Oh, my God. And some kid comes up and you want to see a dead body? And I'd be like, no. And then cry for I a want while. To, I want to custard. Uh, I don't know. What were you? What were you I was a, a weird Dutch little voice? kid is yeah, what I'm you were saying. a small Dutch boy. Yes. <laughs> Got it. All right. Let's let's really focus back here on this story. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, so our, our four friends, Teddy, Chris, Gordy, and Vern. Uh, Teddy has uh, the distinct things about Teddy. He has uh, his glasses. He's also got his, his ears are melted Mm -hmm. because his dad held his ears against a stove. And in the book, he has like a hearing aid uh, because both of his ears are messed up, Mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting in Stand By Me. They just did the one and it wasn't even that messed up. Like it looked gross, yeah, but it didn't seem like a huge ordeal. (laughs) I mean, still messed up. (laughs) Yeah, it was just uh, that gore, Josh. I really Uh, did. Corey Feldman with like a bad prosthetic. That's all. <laughs> exactly. Uh, then we have uh, Chris, who is the their their leader. He's the the one from a troubled home, a violent home life, and all of his older brothers are bullies and tough guys. So nobody expects much from him. Um, Gordy, who is our narrator, who we're hearing the story from his perspective, who just uh, several months ago lost his older brother in a jeep accident, and then we have Vern, who is. Uh, Vern. <laughs> I like, like I, I, everybody is so distinct in the story to me, except for Vern. I forget Vern's a part of this story sometimes until they mention him. Is that just it, me? N- no, I, I, he was the dingus. He was, <laughs> he was the dingus. Of Strong the words. This has been Ben's hot takes. <laughs> this, uh, but uh, Vern is the one who kicks it off by being like, I overheard my brother and his friend saying that they uh, boosted a car. They drove up and they found this kid's body, Ray Brower from Chamberlain, who has been missing and no one knew it was happening. He went Chamberlain, to- guys. <gasps> Anybody recognize <laughs> Chamberlain? Yes. Carrie. Yeah. Yeah. And like interesting that they are. Castle Rock and Chamberlain are just down the train tracks from each other. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Uh, so Vern was under the porch digging for his pennies, which is <laughs> not worth going into. So funny in the movie, though. <laughs> it really is. Because of the unrealistically tall under the house set they built for was, that. I thought that, too. I was like, wow, they really made this huge so that the camera guy could get in there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, just chubby little Chris O'Donnell Aww. really yeah. nails the part of te- of uh, Vern, rather. You mean Jerry O'Connell? What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> did you just say Chris O'Donnell? <laughs> so the, uh, as you guys both well know, that every time there's a Castle Rock book, I freak out. I'm very excited about mm-hmm. it because I love Castle Rock books. Uh, it was also after Vern tells the story that we get the first mention of Ace Merrill, 
and who I knew from Needful Things. I completely forgot about Ace Merrill being one of the secondary antagonists of Needful Things. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I was reading the IMDb trivia page during the movie, (laughs) instead of paying attention, that that I was reminded of that and uh, a bunch of other connections that... Ace Merrill was, is related to Pop Merrill, who's a main character in The Sun Dog. Uh, so then we find out, like I said, they they found the body that it was, they know it was hit by a train. They presume it was hit by a train and, and it's nowhere near where anybody is searching. So they decide they're like, they're, we're going to keep the, our mouth shut and we're never going to tell anybody, which is bullshit because they do. Mm. And so Vern takes this news and he's like, guys, they're not going for it. Do you guys want to camp out and lie to our parents and just do this thing? And everyone's like, yep. All right. Cool. I love that all of them are so dysfunctional mm-hmm. in their own families and own ways that this adventure took zero preparation. Yeah. The parents in this book are all horrible. All of the adult mm, figures yes. are awful people. And there's so Gordon's parents are so deeply mourning the death of his brother that even before his brother died, they didn't know Gordon was there. Right. And now it's even worse. And what really got me while I was reading the book was a line that Gordon says after his mother does something, she ignores him in some way and he's not blaming her. He's excusing her. And he says her only kid was dead. Yeah. Yeah. That's dark. Yeah, I, I agree that like all of these families are so uh so broken pretty much and um a few of them have even like had this experience of death or violence in their family. Uh Gordy with his older brother and Chris specifically with his just like violent delinquent family and his drunk dad, abusive dad and uh like you said earlier like this this is all about them confronting their mortality and experiencing death and that it doesn't really click home even though they all live these kind of terrible home lives Mm -hmm. that it isn't until they see a kid their own age that it it comes home it's really interesting and it explains why the four of them are so close they like mm. they talk about the treehouse where they hang they hang out and that these are our four main characters. But he mentions that there are plenty of other kids that came around and hung out at this mm. treehouse. But the four of them just had this connection. And I think it stems from the fact that all of their home lives are in some way, shape or form very difficult. Uh, and they lean in on each other a lot to get through all of that uh, I- at such a young age. I feel like I got that more in the movie than in the book, at least as far as the friendship among the four of them was portrayed, because I don't know about you guys, but I had a little bit of a hard time with Teddy and Vern in the book being part of that unit the way that Chris and Gordy are. Teddy and Vern just kind of bothered me at times. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, I disagree, though, because, well, they are... They're obnoxious in the book. They're yeah. uh, they're a dingus and like a real weirdo. But that's kind of one of the themes is um, jumping ahead. Like uh, Gordy's dad says, you know, these are your friends, mm-hmm. uh, a delinquent and two Phoebes. But like these these 
guys that he has chosen as his friends, they are in the long run who they are. And later on in the book, there's this sequence where Chris pulls, they're on their walk, and Chris pulls Gordy aside and says, you know, next year we're going to middle school and we're we're all, this all falls apart. We're not going to be friends anymore because, Gordy, you're going to go on to, to the college courses and the three of us are going to be in the in the dummies classes and the remedial stuff and the and the trade courses because that's just who we are and this crushing part of the book where chris says i I don't remember the exact context but he says friends are the people that drag you down and it's so devastating that that's how he feels and that's i mean that's through no fault of their own, that's just Vern and Teddy because they've had such hard lives because they come from the bad side of town. It's it's not their fault that they're unlikable. It's just they're the kids that don't win. And uh, it's sad, but I, I really... It, it gives a depth to their characters in the book. Also, I hated Teddy's fucking laugh in the movie. uh, that's my other problem to what you were saying there's a passage that really struck me which is maybe why i couldn't get into those two characters as much because ben i agree i agree with what you're saying and they have tragic stories and it's not their fault but i was most struck by the relationship between chris and gordy you just know that these two kids get each other and give something to one another that they aren't getting or can't get and aren't giving or can't give to the other two. It's this thing that's shared not among the four of them as friends, but between Chris and Gordy only. I really I really got that in this passage that I want to share with you guys. And as you said, Ben, they're walking and Chris and Gordy fall back. And during that conversation where Chris is saying, this is it, you have to move on. Gordy balks at that idea. And Chris is like, your parents don't give a shit about you. I know they don't. And if they won't, then I will. And he basically says, you can be something. You have a chance and we're anchors dragging you down and you have to cut the rope. Lose us. And what follows is a passage that I had to read it twice because it just really stuck with me. Chris Chambers was 12 when he said all that to me. But while he was saying it, his face crumbled and folded into something older, oldest, ageless. He spoke tonelessly, colorlessly, But nevertheless, what he said struck terror into my bowels. It was as if he had lived that whole life already. It's too old for a 12-year-old Yeah, to have to be so self-aware of his situation Mm -hmm. and the roadblocks that are going to be placed in front of him. For him to have that knowledge at the age of 12 and to have already given up on his life, on his future, that is all ahead of him. Chris Chambers is... Such a fantastic character for all of those reasons. Uh, throughout the book, whenever one of the characters, uh, and that's another thing I love, is all these characters are written so accurately as 12-year-olds. King sometimes, especially in his later books, like has trouble writing kids, you know? He tries to add too much slang, and it comes out kind of goofy. But these kids, you believe these are a group of 12-year-old boys. Chris just has this this way about him of he he handles the peace. He keeps the peace the best. 
He reminded me a, a lot of um, Mike from Joyland with with the the exception of like because we, we talked about in, you know, Mike, because he has the shining and he like <laughs> pro- has all of these, you know, mm. he's so wise because he has so much he's exposed to so much uh, coming into him, whereas like. Chris is, and so he, so Mike says things that are beyond his years. He's wise mm-hmm. beyond his years. Where Chris is uh, that similar way, except for Chris gained all of that information by living the life he lives. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, so it's a, it's a very different way of having all that knowledge. Mm-hmm. But it's the, the way he talks reminded me yeah. of, um, of Mike saying those things that are wise beyond his years. Uh, the, the framing. Uh, is the same where we're hearing this whole story as the main character Gordy is writing about it as an adult. He yeah. is reflecting back on all of this, uh, this fateful two days as a kid. And I wanted to ask you guys, how autobiographical do you think this story is? Because I throughout the whole book could not help but feel like, this was just Stephen King. It's so true to life. It is so just you could feel as though everything in this story happened. On top of the fact that adult Gordy ex- describing his adult life just is Stephen King. That's He yeah, that's describes true. it. He's uh, went on and uh, his first book became a bestseller and then had a movie made out of it and mm-hmm. it became a big hit. And then his second book had a movie. And so he's like this, this horror writer that became super famous and rich from his storytelling. And he's uh, possibly the quintessential King self insert. Yeah. And so I felt like uh that's interesting. Part of it had to have been. What do you think? I think he's drawing on what he knows. I mean, obviously, but part of that, and I think, I suspect that all of us know this when you are that age and you have these experiences with your friends. I mean, he even says in the last part of the book, you never have friends like you do when you were 12. Right. And especially when you go through something as crazy as what they went through confronting death in that way that changes each person it makes a big impact and i think that Mm -hmm. it does something to the friendship you in some cases in some way you can't go back to what you had before because you've all shared this experience nothing else yeah it's the most adventurous thing any of them have ever done like they would always i'm sure as time went on they all remembered that they i'm sure none of them ever really forgot it and they That's each huge. come away changed in different ways from one another. Yeah. Uh, so they they all meet up and they set up a tent. So because they say that they're camping in the in Vern's backyard, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and have the brilliant idea to leave like a lantern. So that way, if, if Vern's parents look out, it will look like they're in the tent. And then they they hit the train tracks and they take off and <laughs> forget at a certain point. Well, uh, one, we find out that um, Chris stole his dad's Chekhov's gun. Mm. <laughs> uh, and so they've, they've got a gun 
and they're walking and they realize they don't have any supplies. There's no food. They're out of water. So they head over. Once again, completely believable 12 year old <laughs> yeah, boys. Totally. Like, I'm hungry. Who brought food? No one brought food because we didn't plan this. <laughs> this is a thing. Everybody just went home, slapped some shit together and then took off. And so they they go to the junkyard because it's got a well. So they're going to fill their canteens. And they uh, this is when we find out they, they gloss over it in the movie. Like they give it a, a passing mention, uh, but they go into more detail in the book about the time that Teddy fell from the tree mm-hmm. and Chris grabbed, caught him by the hair or else he would have fallen to his death, presumably, as they're talking about what a crazy person mm-hmm. Teddy is. And, like, Teddy will uh, dodge cars. Yeah, Teddy has a death wish. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Teddy's a maniac. Yeah. And it's because, you know, his weird tie to, my dad stormed the beaches of Normandy, so I have to storm literally everything. That's- and then almost kills Teddy. Do you guys think that Teddy's craziness, his, his death wish, as you say, Ben, is a way for him to feel close to his dad. Oh, it's it's 100%. It's another reason I liked the character Teddy. He has to believe in something, I guess. That's kind of what I felt. Um, is if he let himself believe, oh, my dad is this terrible person, then it would take away something because he's he's taken that uh, that bravery of being a soldier to heart he that's that's what he he does all of this death defying things because he wants to be that brave uh soldier guy but if he admits well my dad was this brave soldier but he was also a terrible person then that would uh in a section in the book he would keep him up on long sleepless nights i gotta say man ben you are giving me a lot to think about <laughs> i i with vernon teddy like i it's I was kind of with I was with CM kind of in the fact that uh, they didn't seem to be so important to me in the book or stand out as much because mm-hmm. I, I like I said, I, I kind of interchanged them a couple times in my head because I wait, mm. which one is this? And then <laughs> uh, but man, you're making some really good See, points here, man. And I, I like double down even harder. I hate those. Things. <laughs> <laughs> I have to overcommit. <laughs> Uh, I will agree with you, Vern. He's just some dingus. I don't know. He's, <laughs> he's less important. Dingus. But Teddy, I found fascinating. Yeah, there, there's yeah, there's a lot of things. I can tell you really dug into into Teddy a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they we we have them at the dump, and they they decide to flip for who has to go get provisions because they all don't want to do it. Right. And they flip coins, and Gordy is the odd man out. He's got to go. Walk to the store. Well, after and they come up a goocher. Which. That's four tails. It's four. And it's bad luck. I guess. You guys didn't know that? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that either. Oh, I grew up in the late 50s. So. <laughs> I of course knew. What a goocher was. It's just like. I Sometimes I feel like Stephen King. Just puts in something. To be like. Oh. This is going to be ominous. Like I don't, I don't need you to tell me because I'm reading a Stephen King book. Yeah. I know, I know something's gonna happen. You don't have to foreshadow for me that this is that this story about twelve year olds going to find a corpse is gonna take a dark mm-hmm. turn. I don't need that hand holding. I'm good. Uh, so Gordy goes to get provisions, and we meet the worst store owner in the world. 
I thought this was a weird scene because it, was it didn't super really weird. advance anything. This story wastes time several times. If we were just to barrel through the plot and the like, if we were to hit the beats of what happens in this book, this episode would be a half an hour long because not a lot happens. Uh, but we we spend an entire we spend like a bunch of pages on his uh, stud city story, like a short story. We that gotta Glory, come back to that I absolutely I have some yes. thoughts. Oh yes, my god! Please. I'm sorry I mentioned <laughs> it. No, it's one of my favorite parts. What? I hated it. <laughs> really? Well, it see, took okay. me out of the book, and I couldn't figure out. I it was such a tonal shift. It, well, uh, yes. Okay, yeah, I agree. Go okay. for, uh, well, uh, should we go? Should we, we go with this? I, yes. Uh, let me let me finish this thought, okay, and it'll okay. circle back to okay. to you being able to talk about Stud City. Okay. Uh, so uh, we we have the the Stud City excerpt, the uh, the vomit, the the pie, the pie eating, eating contest. contest excerpt. We have this uh, scene with the uh, the convenience store that uh, they just I could have done without. Uh, frankly, I just they they didn't seem to uh, the notes that I made in my phone were like this happened and then I put why <laughs> because this is a short story like we we don't need a lot of this stuff and one of the big differences in the movie that I hated was that they made Gordy have a strong relationship with his brother yeah he in like the movie he, they're like fucking best friends and I feel like it's more important that they don't have any connection yeah. that because Gordy is such like, it's so important to him being such an outsider because mm-hmm. he I was complete a complete accident. Agree. Yeah. And the stud city story doesn't exist without that relationship with his brother being what it is as exactly. far as I'm concerned, at least. So Ben, if you want to talk about stud city and when, what point in the book does it even occur? It's, it's before they, it's when, uh, it's pretty Chris, early. Chris and Gordy are on their way to meet up to go camping. Okay. It's very misplaced in the book. In my opinion, that's what yeah. stuck out to me about it. Yeah. It, well, it's, it, it cuts from them getting ready to go and it is suddenly, a different typeface, and it says Stud City by Gordon Lachance, uh, whatever year it published in published the Published in, like, the 70s. Yeah. And it is a short story that the main character wrote as an adult, and it's just this um, very... It, CM, you're completely right. A complete tonal shift mm-hmm. of this story uh, about a guy who is with a girl who you get the feeling is from the the high the good side of town and he's from the bad side of town and uh he's the you know cool cool guy uh he's a greaser yeah he's 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 billy <laughs> slash bobby it, it's just a story about how his brother died they were working at uh, a car, a race car, a racetrack, yeah. and there was an accident and it killed his brother, and how it affected him and his family, and that it, it was all because he was working at this racetrack because his brother was having an affair with his stepmom mm-hmm. and was trying to get away from her. And it's just this weird tonal shift that feels like this is why I liked it because a it does not feel like it was written by Stephen King. It feels like it was written by Gordy because the themes of this short story in the middle of this novella 
coincide with the themes of uh, how Gordy feels about his brother. Uh, coincides with the right side of the tracks versus wrong side of the tracks relationship that he has with Chris. It feels like this character's short story. And the second reason I read it is because it ends, and then the next section is Gordy in the future going, yep, that was my first short story I got published. It kind of sucks. <laughs> and I loved that because I was like, this short story, it's kinda pretty sucks. misogynistic. <laughs> yep. It's not, it, it's kind of, it has that feeling of it's kind of like, pretentiously literary mm. and trying very hard and i just loved that that king had not only the wherewithal to write a short story as someone else from someone else's perspective a fake person's perspective but then to call it out and be like yeah this was this was from an early point in his career and it wasn't very good i thought it was interesting Maybe maybe it wasn't necessary to the story overall, mm-hmm. but uh, I liked it. Yeah, I, I would. What, that's what, a great uh, summation. It's interesting, but not necessary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, why, why did you really hate it, Sam? I'm interested in that. Maybe it was the way women were treated in it that bothered me, which is something yeah. I kind of have to read about a lot. Yeah, and, fair. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a little bit sick of that, but... It, it was mostly just the tone mm-hmm. and it felt like all of a sudden I'm reading something completely different and I don't know why. Mm. So it, it was those two things that bothered me about it. I really like your perspective on it because mm. it retrospectively makes me accept it At more. Least get it, but yeah. yeah and, no, I, and I got it and I saw the connections yeah, yeah, yeah. between Gordy and his brother and yeah. the story he wrote and all of that, but I didn't need it to understand mm-hmm his pain and what he was going through. That's fair. That's fair. I thought Stephen King had already done an excellent job True. building that. Yeah. That's kind of the, the same wavelength that it was okay. on. Like it was, I almost felt like we were rehashing it, it almost is filler. It seemed like it almost seemed like a story from uh, like a twinner. Yeah. Hmm. Like, because it, it's it's ju- it's just parallel enough. Well, if you call it a Twitter story, I'm gonna have to like it. <laughs> that makes it real deep. <laughs> and CM's rating for Stud City is five, five out of five. five. Okay. okay. Shirts. <laughs> I hated it. Five out of five. That's <laughs> never gonna let that down. Painfully <laughs> accurate to CM as a person. Okay, so that that's our right. our. We don't have to we've, talk we've about Stud City anymore. All right, we're gonna Stud City. Where where are our kids? on their adventure. Uh, we are back at the junkyard. Gordy's coming back with all the supplies and the, we've heard about Chopper, this dreaded junkyard dog mm-hmm. and Milo and Chopper because <laughs> Chopper has learned to sick balls, sick balls <laughs> and will castrate a child. And <laughs> it's compared to a uh, killer St. Bernard from the future. Yeah. Joe. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Which is random Cujo reference because it's a Castle Rock book. And apparently a Cujo <laughs> reference has to be in every Castle Rock book. Oh, absolutely. As I'm learning now. I dig it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so <laughs> Gordy shows up and he, all of his friends are not where he left them. And then he sees that Milo, the owner, or the yeah, the operator of the junkyard, catches him. And all of his friends have, like, hopped the fence and are running away. So he <laughs> hears them... 
He hears the dog running after him and he makes it across the fence just in time. He's freaking the hell out, turns around and it's this tiny ass dog. <laughs> and uh, Teddy is a asshole <laughs> to the dog. Yeah, that's like fair. the fact like that Teddy taunts the dog to the point where it, I think it like it says oh, like it, it charges starts, the it, fence yeah, so hard it hurts itself. Yeah, which then like, made me feel it bad. It starts for like Charlie. bleeding because it was yeah. trying to like bite through the fence. Mm-hmm. But then we have this old grown ass man yelling at a child across a fence like they're trying like they're gonna fight. John, like, <laughs> you come over here and say that. No, you come over here and you say that. Like this scene can't go anywhere from here <laughs> until everyone leaves, and it doesn't. <laughs> and then we move on because that's. Again, like it's just a, just a weird, a weird aside. It's the whole story is almost feels like a series of vignettes. They're, they're definite set pieces. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it has a standard setup of a hero's tale. The different things that the hero must overcome to, you know, he leaves one way, he goes through all these trials, and they change him, and he comes out a different person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it, some of them work really well, and others are like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think some of it is also we're setting up expectation versus reality uh, because that is what we get into that a lot when as they get closer to the body Mm -hmm. that, you know, in their heads, they've built up this this dog is this monster. And so this is the first like time we see that the reality does not meet their expectation as it will continue to not do for the most of this journey, even Hmm. though this is a. You know, like a horror story, it seems like. And it's Stephen King. It's not a horror story. <laughs> oh, not <laughs> at all. Except you get a glimpse of that when they are in the woods. They're they're sleeping overnight in the woods. And they all wake up to this screaming sound. And is it Teddy or Vern who thinks it's the ghost of, of the kid? I believe it's Vern. Yeah. Vern. And that, then Teddy decides he's going to go oh, look yeah, for he's, it. Yeah, he's going to go fight a ghost. <laughs> so that reading that passage, I got that kind of like tingly up my spine. Like, ooh, <laughs> I'm reading a Stephen King book. <laughs> uh, something that uh, one of the a quote that I am so glad that they used in the movie as well as uh, in the book. Uh, right after that junkyard standoff uh, and Milo calls Teddy's dad a, a loon. Uh, they get away and Teddy just has a breakdown and each one of these kids at one point or another has a complete yeah. emotional breakdown. There's mm-hmm. balls in front of the rest of them. And so this is, this is Teddy's and uh, they talk about how like in, in Gordon in his head is like, I don't know how he could love his dad, which uh, I put, I, I, I made a note that said me either until you just <laughs> until earlier when you ran it off all that stuff. And now it makes perfect <laughs> sense. Um, but the fact when he said Vern says that maybe this shouldn't be a good time mm-hmm. uh, because Teddy apologizes for ruining the good time. I think in the movie Gordy says the uh, maybe it shouldn't be a good time. Yeah. But in the in the book, Vern's the one who says maybe this shouldn't be. We are on our way to see a dead kid. Maybe this shouldn't be a fun thrill ride of an adventure like there should be some weight yeah. to mm-hmm. it. It's like the anti Goonies. right because the the body is good and the goonies is not uh oh sorry (laughs) all right so uh now we get to the first the first time in this book that i like was freaking out when they have to walk across that uh what is that called the 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 trestle trestle? 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. The trestle over this long expanse where they have to walk across the train tracks and there's nowhere to go if there's a train like were to come. 60 foot drop or something yeah. crazy like that. Into what would be presumably shallow water yeah. is <laughs> how they go about it. And it was such an intense moment to read about as they're like braving, like, all right, we're doing this because going around takes too long. And as they go, Gordy getting that almost psychic flash and just reaching down and touching the rails and feeling them vibrate. And the second he like, describes that, I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> shit's about to get real. One of these kids might die because I'd never read or seen the movie. Although, was it before or after that where he mentions that none of them... I mean, they all came out okay. I think that's after. Yeah, that's okay, because I, yeah. I couldn't remember. Yeah, I there is thinking, yeah. a point in the story where he's, he's got Gordy in the future, says, no, no one died in the woods. We saw the body and got home safe. Uh, but, you know, uh, he also mentions that everyone is dead in the present, yeah. except for him. Which I didn't like in the movie. But we'll get to that when we get to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Gordy yells train, mm-hmm. and the, the train's coming up behind them, so they have to sprint and get out of the way. The train is almost at them, and they see Chris just mouthing jump because they can't hear anything because it's right behind them, and the whistle's going. It's so intense. And they narrowly avoid being smashed by the train, just like Ray presumably yeah. did earlier. Causing Vern in the movie to make the funniest face of all time. <laughs> oh my God. Jerry O'Connell's face <laughs> in that whole scene is just everything good. Yeah. Uh, but what I thought was interesting is that when they make that jump, that Gordy specifically says he never saw the train. That he he never mm. looked up because he was shaking so badly that he was like, positive he was just gonna shit his pants (laughs) he was like the way he describes the fear coursing through him is so gripping he did pee his pants he oh yeah he did pee his pants i also love that because it it mirrors what uh the kid that they're going to see who was hit by a train and them him laying in the ground with his hands over his eyes refusing to look up is him like refusing to acknowledge you know that kid-like sense of no i didn't almost just die yeah if i look up and see that train i will realize how close i came so next we have uh unless either of you have anything to talk about with the revenge of lard ass hogan <laughs> i feel like we can just trip past it I- i've never seen the movie but i have seen that scene i don't know how <laughs> And I feel Good. like it's kind of iconic. Did anyone else? Like, we'd, we'd uh, all never seen this movie, right? That I, is correct. I think I you did had? when I was oh. really young. The part about it that I liked in the book was the end when he finishes his story and Teddy is like, okay, then what happens? He's like, well, that's that's it. Mm-hmm. And Teddy's not happy with that. So Gordy makes up some crap ending and he's like, yeah, it ends there because <laughs> that's the place it ends. Look what happens when I make up this ending to please you. Right. Yeah. I did like that. Mm -hmm. It was Um, a a nice detail because it's then it's soon after this that we have the talk that we talked about earlier about, you know, Gordon has this gift mm -hmm. uh, for Gordy has this gift for storytelling and these these things he creates. So I understand why this story was in this spot, because it cuts to the published version of the story as he's presumably Mm -hmm. telling the off 
his brain one to them at the campsite. That was the segue I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. And just to summarize, it's uh, three pages about a fat kid that pukes a bunch. Yep. It's pretty funny. It's weird. It is pretty funny. And I loved the movie version because of the line, a fat lady puked in her purse. (laughs) That was very funny to me. Anyway, yeah, we can move on. Yeah. Uh, So now we find out about the the story about the milk money that Chris Mm -hmm. was suspended because milk money went missing. There was not proof that he stole it, but everybody just knew he stole it. So he was suspended. And I love the way he says where where he admits it to Mm -hmm. Gordy. He's like, because Gordy asks, like, did you? And he's like, of course I did. I'm I'm fucking Chris. Obviously, I stole (laughs) it. But maybe I felt bad and maybe I gave it back. And maybe that money never made it back to anybody. And a teacher bought a new skirt and just like kind of leaves Mm -hmm. it. Mm Uh, because he knows that he doesn't have the power to make an accusation because of his family, because of his upbringing. Like everybody mm-hmm. just knows he's trouble and that's it. That's the end of it. I think it would have been a cop out to have it go the other way where he didn't actually take the money yes. and just got accused because of who he is. And I like that. That's not the route King took. It felt so much more real. Yeah. That he did actually take it. And then he has that moment. And then you see that his belief and the things that he and Gordy were talking about earlier are constantly reinforced by society and the adults around him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, we've talked about them, the the nightmare and like the seeing the thinking the ghost might be out in the woods when they camp for that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is just something I thought was interesting when they, they decide they're going to take watch because they don't know what could be out there. Mm-hmm. And when Gordy's on watch, he tells the story about seeing a deer. And the note that I made was like, I just put Stephen King, you got me because (laughs) the entire time Gordy is telling that story, I don't give a shit. Like, I just didn't care about the story. It was and it's because I, you know, we'd been through Stud City, been through the convenience store thing. So in my brain, I'm already like, we are spending a lot of time on things that I don't care about and are not important. And then to end the thing with the deer and to bring it back to the uh, the most important things are the hardest to say because words diminish yeah. them. And I was like, God <laughs> damn it. I, like, you just made it so important to you and I dismissed it just like you knew I would. <laughs> you son of a bitch. My, that, that might be my favorite segment in the book, which kind of reinforces this whole story is this story of finding this kid out in the woods it has so much meaning to him. It's been deeply ingrained in who he is, and he's never told anyone about it. Because when the story comes right down to it, like you said, not a whole lot happens. It's some kids march into the woods, and they find a body, and then they leave and go home. And unless you were there, unless you were feeling the feelings that Gordy and Chris were feeling. It's, it can't, you can't feel the importance of that moment. I loved it. The end of that quote actually says, it's hard to make strangers care about the good things in your life. Ah. And I was like, fuck, because I didn't (laughs) care about that. (laughs) And I just, I felt, I felt like I got God. 
Uh, <laughs> That's I, all I'm saying. That whole segment was just so beautifully written. I, I loved it. I had a very similar experience with a squirrel. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually being no, sincere. Le- just, <laughs> is this like American Beauty? Like, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. <laughs> it, yes. It As you were talking about that, I was I was thinking about my own squirrel story. And <laughs> Great. And how you really have to be the one experiencing that and everything mm-hmm. in the universe has to line up in just the exact perfect way for you to appreciate that moment in that way. But I can't share it here because words will diminish it. <laughs> <laughs> so now we uh, we go to uh, we're getting closer. They, they know they are uh, only hours away and they decide to take a break. And get swarmed by leeches. Which <laughs> they decide to get swarmed They decide. By they jump in this pond <laughs> and get covered with leeches. And I just thought it was hilarious that Cordy gets one on his balls. Yeah. I and was... then once somebody else to grab it off. That like, seems like it would be more traumatic. Out. Chris has a very reasonable reaction of, of no, man. No, no, man. You're on your own. No, man. <laughs> and that it, That's... That's your balls. <laughs> not my balls, not my leech. Oh, I know the title of the episode. <laughs> not my and then balls, he grabs it and it bursts in his hand Ugh. and he's straight up just balls. Like, it's just like, that's the thing that breaks Gordy is that moment. And he's just like, nope. The, this part was another part that I was like, every little vignette, I was like, okay, the characters grow in this way. Uh, the characters learn this. This part... I didn't feel like there was... I was like, I don't know what anyone learned here, but (laughs) reading the trivia section, this, almost this exact same thing did actually happen to Stephen King as a kid. Oh. Leading me to my autobiographical theory that he went and saw a corpse. Also, this is the point of the story where Gordy says that everyone is dead in the present, but they all survived this time. Right. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Thank you. I just had I had that in my notes and I was like, "Oh, that's where it was." All right. There are two very important things that are about to happen. One, they've talked about how hot and dry and and terrible the summer has been, but there's a storm coming. Like they can tell, they can hear it a little bit. It's getting dark. And then Vern sees the body, sees it on the side of the embankment, and they go down and the body is at the bottom of an undergrowth with a single white hand just sticking out. And that seems so creepy to me. Like it gave me goosebumps, like looking because and just anybody searching if they were, you know, if nobody was looking for the body probably wouldn't see it but because they knew it was somewhere nearby and they they just they saw that hand and then as they approach it the rain starts which would have been way more dramatic in the movie (laughs) right but uh they all jump down they take the stuff off they turn the body over and they stare and there's just this moment where they're all looking at his open eyes Mm -hmm. and it's like in, in, at least when I was reading it, I was like, oh, man, I don't, even, I don't know what's going to happen next. Like, where do we go from here? And then Ace and the gang show yeah. up. <laughs> what a great villain, because he is, is a maniac. And I love a good maniac. <laughs> and I love that Ace is just like, all right, um, well, we're here. Yeah. So he just walks up and he's like, 
ask your mama if she believes this. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, okay, you guys can leave. We're going to get credit for the body. Or you can stay. We'll beat the shit out of you. Then we'll take credit for the body. Honestly, very reasonable. Uh, you know, which I know made what him pick. scarier. Yeah. Which, yeah, I, I thought this whole part was so fucking menacing. Did you guys think it was, if we're following kind of the hero's trial, it was interesting how everything ends up that as they're having this confrontation and we should go over some of the really cool one-liners because I loved some of those. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, Vern and Teddy take off and mm. it's just... Chris and Gordy there standing up to this group of teenage boys. Yeah. Hoodlums. And they're the ones who, who sort of Chris and Gordy come out as far as the rest of their lives go on top. Whereas Vern and Teddy. That is true. Have kind of a different outcome. And is it because those two did not have that final battle, if you will? Maybe it's, it's kind of, it makes me think that maybe Chris and, and Gordy have the fight in them. Right. Because Chris, Chris knew that life was against him. He wanted to get out of Castle Rock. He wanted to make something of his life. And he knew that everything was stacked against him. And as we learn that after this all happens, Gordy helps him. He tutors him every day, fighting and and getting him to to uh, the point where he eventually goes off to college and is starting to make himself. And so those two, this standoff with Ace and his gang, show that they have that metal. They mm-hmm. have that that uh, drive in them. Whereas uh, Teddy and Vern are just the <laughs> guys that get beat up. The guys that... Uh, they, their lives are kind of ahead of them, and that's that's it. It's like those two are just along for the ride, mm-hmm. and Chris and Gordy have had a life-changing experience that what they've gone through and this body has meant something to them, mm-hmm. which is why they try to protect it. Right, and Chris pulls out his dad's gun and points it right at Ace, and they have this menacing standoff. And like, I just, I, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember the exact line, but the Chris was like, I like asked him, asked him if he wanted it in the, the knee. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, the, when like Ace is like, you're not going to shoot me. You don't have the balls to shoot me. This was after the one liner, suck my fat knob, you <laughs> 10 cent hoodlum, <laughs> which I love. That's great. Uh, but like Ace is still advancing on Chris, aiming a gun mm-hmm. at him. And he's like, you're, you're not going to shoot me. And Gordy says that he saw Chris get this size, this weary side, has this resigned look on his face where Chris is feeling like, this is what I am. I'm, I'm the hoodlum with the gun. Mm-hmm. And he sighs and he says, which will it be, Ace? Do you want it in the arm or the leg? I can't decide you pick so fucking cool holy shit it shows this vulnerability with that you know ben as you were saying that metal Mm -hmm. and i i just love that those two things come together and it just enhances both of them without the vulnerability it's just not the same 
yeah, it it's it shows there's no m- malice really. It shows that he's he may be the kid with the gun who is going to say, "I will shoot you," because that's who I believe I am. Yeah, resigning but, to your fate. But kind of. it's also saying that like. I don't want it. This isn't well. It, it's scared. not that it it's, isn't on. He doesn't want to do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But he will if if that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. I, I that part goosebumps. So cool, fantastic. And then so Ace Ace backs off and he's like, "We are going to get you for this. Like this isn't over. It's oh, you like you know you've won the battle. You're not going to win the war. They pack up and leave, and then they don't." take the they don't do anything with the body they just decide they're gonna mm-hmm. double time it back home and that's gonna be that which i don't know how i feel about that I, yet i still I haven't decided I, I think i like it because what they came for was fame they wanted to discover the body right they wanted to get their picture taken be on the news but they found something they weren't expecting they came away with something mm-hmm. far more important and deeper than fame and they didn't need that then so that's why they left the body because they they were leaving that notion. They realized that that this death was more than that. Mm-hmm. That the this is deeper. Yeah, I completely agree with CM. I thought it was uh, uh, it was all. It also showed Chris because Chris once Ace and his gang drive off. Chris is saying we're building him. We're we're building a thing to carry him out of these woods. We're taking him, and he fights off the other guys and and breaks down. And he wants to do the right thing so bad, but then they just they just realize that the kid's dead. There's mm-hmm. nothing that they can do. It's not for them anymore. Okay, here's my problem with mm-hmm. that. In the movie, they do a great way of justifying that by saying, we got back, we made an anonymous call uh, because mm-hmm. we knew that, you know, that this was bigger than us. They They put the blanket over the body to help kind of protect it. And... But in the book, he says that nobody ever found out that they were even there. They assume Ace called in mm-hmm. some anonymous tip, which means they were never going to say anything as far as like as far as that reads to me. Like mm-hmm. they would have just left that body there and just waited for someone else to find it. Seems awful to me. I, I guess I had read it probably wrong as Ace had beat them to calling it in. Maybe that was just me being generous. Because when you say that, I feel really bad for the kid's family. Yeah. Who will never have closure. Mm-hmm. Th- yeah, I, that's it, what made me mad. As I was reading it, I just thought, oh, the, the older kids, you know, took care of that and they didn't have to do anything else. I The way I read it, it made it sound like we decided not to do something. We decided not to report it. And we never found out who said something. But we assume that it, like it seemed too yeah. passive to be like, oh, Ace got to it before we could make a call. Like it seemed just like, oh, it it ended up being taken care of, so don't worry about it. Like the kid got found eventually. It just had nothing to do with us, really. Yeah, and I, I did not like that. Pretend I, it was the way I said. <laughs> <laughs> and then so just to 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 wrap up the the epilogues of these. Uh, Ace did get him back. Ace broke Gordy's nose, two of his fingers, swole his left eye shut by like jumping out of the car and beating the hell out of him. Uh, Chris had his arm broken in two places. Uh, Vern's brother, 
hit him with like a pipe and knocked him unconscious. And, and the only stopped, reason he, he stopped meeting he him. him. Yeah, because he <laughs> thought he killed him. And then three of the guys beat the shit out of Teddy and broke his glasses. Oh, oh and they stopped because they realized he, he was, was trying, trying to fight, fight back, back and couldn't see them. Yeah. And Which I was is like, just Aw, Teddy. <laughs> crazy. And that's and then he mentions that they they just drifted apart, which is what you do with people mm-hmm. that you're, you know, your best friends from that age. A lot of people just drift apart. Um, Vern died in a an apartment fire in 1966 in Brooklyn after a, par- a night of partying. It was in Lewiston, but he says in Brooklyn it would have been called a tenement. Fire. Oh, that's yeah. OK. I misread that. Uh, Teddy died in a drunk driving car accident where he not only killed himself, but several other people in the car real quick. Yeah. One of uh, there was this segment about Teddy. It's uh, they talk about, you know, if you take people out with you, you're a piece of shit. Right. And so he was drunk driving with a bunch of his friends mm-hmm. and almost everyone in the car died immediately. But one girl was sent to a main hospital where she was in a coma for six months before, quote, an angel of death pulled... No, I thought it was an angel of mercy. An angel of mercy, whatever. That's how an they angel of mercy, it, of mercy pulled her cord for her. Now, we haven't gotten to this book yet, but you guys what, are these the odds, <laughs> what are the odds that that angel of mercy's name is Annie Wilkes? Mm. <laughs> D- don't I worry. Got, no, Josh, I, 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 Josh is staring blankly. Yeah, uh, I'm just. I'm really boy, excited. Boy, can about... I not wait to read Misery? I love that goddamn oh, book. Oh, all right. Yeah. Shit. All right. That's cool. Um, we established that Chris went on to try to make something of himself, and he was working on becoming a lawyer. He went to college, and one day he walked into a Chicken Delight fast food restaurant. These two people who had uh, been recently released from Shawshank. Got into a fight, a knife was pulled, and Chris got a knife to the neck when and was killed. When you guys read that, did you think they shanked him? God! <laughs> God! I expect oh. better from you, CM. I expect that joke to come yeah, out of from me. Josh? <laughs> from Josh, yes. From you, I expect better. <laughs> I'm sorry, listeners. It's been an awful Oh, night. God, that's fantastic. I love it so much. Uh, I'm only mad because I didn't say it. Uh, Gordy went on to become a successful writer, uh, wrote books that got turned into movies, married with kids. And Ace, he said when he saw him in town, looked fat and washed up and sad. Which I felt was a great ending for for well, what a would great be the ending, ending slash prequel to Needful Things. To Needful Things. <laughs> Should we go around and yeah, read this sucker? Definitely. <laughs> Let's do who, it. Who wants to start? I will. I'll go ahead and start. Yeah. Um. All right. So the the book, man, that opening paragraph is mm. the most perfect opening paragraph I think I've ever read. Mm. I read it. I had to set the book down. Then I had to take a picture of it and send that opening Mm -hmm. paragraph to everybody I've ever met to be like, is this not the most amazing thing you've ever seen? Having said that, the other moments that I felt were kind of uh, padding Mm drug it down for me. Uh, So I'm going to uh, give it a four out of five blue chambray shirts and I'm going to give the movie Stand By Me a three out of five. 
because I I felt like it was a great adaptation, but mm-hmm. this is not a story that has a lot. Uh, there's not a lot to show. And I, mm-hmm. I found myself while I enjoyed it and it was true to form to the book. I could have stopped watching it at any time and would not have felt like I missed anything because I've read the book. Mm-hmm. And so I know the story. Fair. So not to say too much against it, but it was it was just middle of the road for me. I will right off the bat agree completely with everything Josh said. The book was, I felt, beautifully written. Mm-hmm. Just the language uh, is, this whole book so far, we're only three-fourths of the way through, but I think just pure king at the top of his game. The Just the writing is superb. Mm-hmm. As a pastiche, you feel like you're there in this summer with these kids. That said, yeah. It's it's uh, a little too long, a little too slow. So uh, I, I think that takes it down to a four out of five. And the movie, honestly, the acting is fantastic. Great acting. For uh, a movie where the leads are for young actors. But yeah, I, I found myself kind of paying more attention to the IMDb trivia than usual because i was just like not and it felt really short did anyone else think that because not a lot happens yeah i I was like oh it's over because there's no real big conflict at the end Mm -hmm. it's just they find it and they go home so i would also give the movie um a solid uh three out of five blue chambray shirts worth watching if there's nothing else on cm what i love about the book is that you can Walk away from it and days later still find deeper meaning in all of its themes. Mm. So I would give the book five out of five blue chambray shirts. The movie, I thought there were a couple of things in the book and I don't, we didn't really hit on all of them, but a a few things that just, I, I had this, these images in my head that really stuck out to me and I thought were cool. And like all these movies seem to do, they water down those really important points. I think overall they did a good job sticking to the story, but because I missed some of those deeper moments and Mm. some of the changes that they made, you know, making a character do something that a different character did, Mm. I thought kind of cheapened that other character a little bit. Definitely. So I would give the movie four out of five blue chambray shirts. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us next episode for part four, covering the breathing method. For Benjamin Graham and Joshua Kahn, I'm CM Alexander reminding you that the most important things are the hardest to say. This episode of Dairy Public Radio is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash dairy and browse their awesome selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash dairy. Audible is convenient to use, the app is great, and there's so much to choose from. I recently listened to Annihilation, book one of the Southern Reach trilogy, and it was awesome. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash dairy. We hope you enjoyed part three of different seasons, The Body. Here's a fun bit of trivia for you that I found on Cracked.com. Then 13-year-old Jerry O'Connell's antics shut down production of the film for two days. 
he allegedly skipped filming to visit a local fair and went so far as to tie his babysitter to a banister. But that's not the crazy part. This wasn't a typical fair. This was more of a free-spirited affair, and the sweets he bought had a little something extra in them. He was found, hours later, in a park, sobbing and out of his mind. Much like we all felt at the end of the last episode. Do you have a funny and or adventurous story to share? Tell us on our Facebook and Instagram at Dairy Public Radio or Twitter at Dairy Public. You can also send questions to our email, dairypublicradio at gmail.com. And you can listen to Dairy Public Radio everywhere you listen to podcasts. So please like and subscribe. It helps us out. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.